of uh, the section that we had in um, the sixth chapter of Genesis. Uh, We have been looking at the period immediately preceding the flood, a period of uh, great difficulty spiritually, a great decline. Uh, Last time we looked at uh, some uh, challenging interpretive issues. Uh, To be specific, uh, we looked at uh, the mysterious sons of God. Uh, What does that mean? We looked at the expression 120 years, and we looked at the the Nephilim, whatever they are. So we, we, we looked at the different points of view with respect to those interpretive issues and uh, you can refresh your memory if you want to look at the, uh, those notes uh, taking us up through Genesis 6, uh, verses 1 through 4. Uh, but this is, again, this is the period uh, leading up to the flood, a time of cataclysmic judgment uh, of a holy, righteous God upon the earth, which had been defiled and um, was in a, a state of plummeting spiritual decay. Uh, And where we find ourselves today is God's assessment of the earth at that point in time. Uh, So we'll be picking up at Genesis 6, verse 5, and and going through verse 8, and just making a brief comment or two about verse 9. But I'm going to read this section for us, Genesis 6, 5 through 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 9, there's an expression that we've seen before. Uh, These are the generations or the records of the generations of Noah, etc. This uh, little expression, these are the generations, are a a literary marker by Moses that you're about to embark on a new chapter, a new episode uh, that he wants to highlight. So it's almost like a chapter division. And keep in mind that the chapter divisions in our Bibles were not part of the original text. So Moses, writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, has provided a, a, an indication for us that we should note that something distinctively new uh, is going to be taking place, and we need to be paying attention to that. But what we look at uh, in this time, and, and we, we describe the period immediately preceding the flood uh, sometimes in, in reading literature, you'll see the expression antediluvian, uh, A-N-T-E, which means before diluvian, which talks about the deluge, uh, the flood. Um, we'll look at this, the flood, in greater detail when we progress through the end of chapter 6 and uh, some of the following chapters. Uh, but some have uh, looked at the flood, and it's tragic that they do, but as a regional flood. Uh, the flood was not regional. The flood was worldwide. Uh, and uh, it, it's critical that we understand that because uh, all of humanity, with the exception of Noah and his immediate family, were destroyed. And all non-marine life was destroyed. And clearly that would not have been the case of been some type of a regional flood. And we've had all sorts of regional floods since Genesis 6. And God, in his 
um, promise to creation, to man itself, said, I'm not going to destroy the earth again by water. He didn't say that he wouldn't bring judgment at all. He will bring judgment, but it won't bring, it will not be by water, it'll be by fire. So we need to understand that what we're looking at is a period right up to the point where God literally wiped clean the face of the earth uh, from all humanity, all non-marine life, uh, as a judgment on sin. Uh, And it's a tragic time, but it was a time that is completely consistent with the character of God, and we need to keep that in mind. But this, the, the, the assessment of God uh, in what he saw, uh, if you look at Genesis 6, verse 5, uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intent, some translations say every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil uh, continually. Uh, this little expression um, that God saw Uh, there's a remarkable contrast here because if you go back to Genesis chapter 1 Moses again writing under the inspiration of the Spirit describes the creation days and these were ordinary days these were 24 hour days there were six creation days and the seventh day was a day when the Lord rested as a Sabbath uh, as a creation ordinance Um, but during those days the Lord would look at what he had made And he created simply by the word of his mouth, out of nothing. And he declared what he had made good. And in chapter 1, verse 31, his assessment of all that he had made, he said he looked and he saw all that he had made, and it was very good. That was the Lord's assessment of what he had made by declaration. That was before sin entered the world. Sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve were given free reign. Uh, over the earth with one exception. Uh, They could eat of any fruit of the tree, any any vegetable, whatever was available to them, and they were in a lush environment with the the Garden of Eden. Uh, But there was one exception, and it was they could not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And uh, and Eve uh, looked at the tree and saw that it was uh, good for food, pleasing to the eye, and that it would give them knowledge and it's similar, the, the Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And you see all three of those in what took place with Eve as she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and it would be profitable to her to give her knowledge. Uh, all of those, it was strictly forbidden. And Adam, who was with her, uh, participated as well. And what we remember is that God had made a covenant with Adam, not simply for him, but for all of his posterity. And all mankind descending from Adam by ordinary generation sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And we know that because Paul, the apostle writing in the New Testament in Romans 5.12, tells us thereby through, through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and so death spread to all men. Because all sinned. And how was it that all sinned? Uh, Because all humanity had a federal head. And that federal head was Adam. Uh, And so when he participated in that transgression, literally all mankind fell in him. And so all mankind is guilty. All mankind is culpable. All mankind lost original righteousness. All mankind's nature was defiled. Uh, We call that original sin. 
And there are all sorts of transgressions in thought, word, and deed that proceed from our fallen nature literally every day, many, many times each day, all adding to our culpability. And so judgment came, but there was a word of grace in Genesis 3 uh, when Adam and Eve had attempted, with their eyes now being open to the fact that they were naked, uh, it was not a shameful matter to them before, but now they saw themselves with fallen eyes and they were ashamed for the first time in all creation. There was shame. And so they took fig leaves and stitched them together and made aprons for themselves. Uh, and so any attempt that man makes to cover his nakedness obviously is going to fail. And so what the Lord did is he took an animal and slew that animal and made skins for them and covered them. And it's a picture of the fact that man's attempt to cover uh, his fallenness uh, is really a form of self-righteousness. And and people do that all the time. They they attempt through various means to deal with their sin through their own uh, devices. And God's assessment of that is that that simply is unacceptable. Uh, Sin can only be covered by sacrifice. And so you have a picture of that in Genesis 3 where you have God providing the results of a a slain animal uh, to provide covering for them. But he gave a promise in Genesis 3.15, we call that the first gospel, the Proto-Evangelium, that he would provide uh, a redeemer, uh, that there would be a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman would be bruised, uh, but the head of the seed of the serpent would be crushed. Uh, And that anticipates, uh, obviously, the coming of Messiah. Uh, And so we're going to be considering that as well uh, as we we look at this passage. But that promise uh, was never abrogated. When God makes a promise, he always keeps his promise. It never fails. When he judges, he always judges according to his righteousness. And it's, it's always a just righteous, a just judgment because his character requires that he judge sin. Uh, and so we look at Genesis 6 and we see God making an assessment. Uh, and and this, the assessment that he made of mankind in Genesis 6-5 uh, is absolutely the same assessment that he would make of mankind today uh, when he says that every imagination of their heart was only evil all the time. That's true of any unregenerate person. Uh, That's true of every unregenerate person, that God looks upon uh, an unsaved person as a guilty person whose thoughts and imaginations fall short of the glory of God. Paul the Apostle wrote in Romans uh, that all of us have have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Uh, And so all of this is rooted in the historic uh, rendition that we see in Genesis. Some some people have looked at Genesis as some type of almost a mythological account or some type of a parable. It's liberal history, and we we have to take Genesis in its entirety uh, as literal history and read it exactly as that. And so that's why when we look at the days of creation, we look at the fall, uh, as Francis Schaeffer years ago uh, wrote a a, a book, I forgot the title of it, but he talked about a space-time fall. What he meant by that was you could literally, if you had a watch and you had a calendar, you could say, on this day, at this time, sin entered the world. That's that's what he meant, that it was historic, uh, that it was not metaphorical, it was not something imaginary. uh, But if you looked at your watch, you could see exactly that moment when sin entered the world through Adam transgressing the law of God 
and you could mark that on your calendar that life from that point forward would never be the same again. All of creation was tarnished, and the implications of that were played out for us in Genesis 6. So you've got Genesis 1, God looking at creation and saying all that he had made was very good. And then you see in Genesis 6 uh, that the Lord looks at, um, he was sorry that he had made man on the earth. Some translations say that it repented of God that he had made man. I think the authorized version uses that language. Is that right? Is that what it says? It is. But uh, so the the language suggests that God had repented. That's going to be a topic that we'll talk about today is what does it mean that God is sorry that he had done something? What does does God ever change his mind? Uh, We're going to be looking at that because uh, today there are all sorts of aberrant understandings of the character of God. And it's critical that we see God as he has revealed himself uh, in Scripture. Uh, And so that's going to be the focus that we'll have today when we look at Uh, the implications of God's judgment on sin. So um, page 7 of your notes, and we're really picking up because we covered pages 1 through 6 last time, Um, but uh, it's the second paragraph. You can't find a more emphatic statement of wickedness than every imagination or every intent of the thoughts of the heart. And by the way, this expression, the heart, is the first time that the scripture refers to the heart. Now, the heart is not that organ in our chest. It's talking about uh, the inner person, the, the soul of the person, the entire inner person. Uh, he, he looked at the, uh, the heart, uh, the inner person, and every intent of the thoughts of, of the, the inner person was only evil, some translations say, all the time or continually. So you've got three words that are focusing upon the fact that uh, that man was through and through uh, degenerate in terms of uh, holiness before God was fallen. And the tragedy, of course, is that uh, this was not a singular event. This was ongoing because the scripture says continually, and it is not only ongoing, it's comprehensive, every intent of the imagination of the heart. Uh, and, and so we, we understand that when we look at behavior, we're looking at the fruition of the heart. Um, when we see speech, we see the scripture tells us that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And, and what proceeds from our mouth is really the fruit of what's in our mouth. And so when we, the fruit of our heart. Uh, so when we see vile speech, uh, intemperate speech, um, harsh speech, that shows us that we have a bad heart. And that's really what that's. And it's a statement that affects all of us. We're born, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that we're born dead in sin. Uh, And so all of us uh, need to understand, and and we're sitting here today understanding that the only reason that we have a covering is because the Lord Jesus Christ has has himself taken upon himself um, the the sins of his people and died to satisfy the judgment of a holy God. Uh, So this was an ongoing situation. It wasn't temporary. There was no repentance. There was no hesitation. Uh, I'm reminded of what we saw with the life of Cain when Cain slew his dear innocent brother Abel and the Lord approached Cain and and after Cain's uh, offering had been rejected and gave him an opportunity to repent, gave him an opportunity to do this thing over in such a way that he would be pleasing to God. And Cain's response to that, rather than being humbled by this, rather than being 
uh, contrite about his sin, uh, became hardened in his opposition to God and ultimately displaced his anger towards God by murdering his brother and then trying to cover it up and failed to acknowledge that, in fact, he is his brother's keeper. We're all our brother's keeper. Who's our neighbor? Our na- the Bible says that whoever's around us is our neighbor. Uh, but Cain showed no repentance whatsoever, and he's really a prototype of what happens when people continue in sin. But this, this uh, Calvin, uh, in the, the inset on page 7, uh, says that a prodigious wickedness uh, everywhere reigned so that the whole earth was covered with it. That's the condition that we find ourselves in in Genesis 6. And candidly, it's no different than it is today. Uh, as the Lord looks at humanity today, uh, the, the world is not a righteous place. Uh, the world is full of, of, uh, of all sorts of depravity. Uh, and so uh, that's the point that's being made at the, at the bottom of page 7 that the situation described here in the middle of Genesis 6 and verse 5 uh, is not just a picture of what was taking place prior to the flood, uh, but it, it is a, an assessment of man's condition apart from the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, because God sees us as, apart from Christ, apart from being born again, apart from being saved, as uh, only pursuing sin all the time, uh, unable to do good. And, of course, we've we've talked about this in previous classes when we were looking at the solas of the Reformation, uh, but we're only saved by faith alone through grace alone. Uh, And we've looked at certain doctrines. We've looked at the doctrine of total inability or total depravity. And sometimes people will say, what does it mean to be totally depraved? It doesn't mean that man is as bad as he could be, and that's, that's a common grace of God. Praise him that man does not uh, actually act out uh, his fallenness as vehemently, as terribly as he could. Um, we've seen instances in world history where some absolutely atrocious things have taken place, and it's not unique to Hitler or Mussolini or Stalin or others. It takes place uh, in America as well uh, with all sorts of mass shootings and the like. Uh, but praise God that man does not act out his evil as, uh, as badly as he could. What we mean by total inability or total depravity uh, is that man uh, in his very core is fallen, uh, that man is unable to do good before a holy God. Isaiah 64, 6 uh, says that when God looks at our so-called good deeds, uh, he says that they are as a filthy rag. And the, the, type, the, the word that he uses is actually a menstrual cloth, how repulsive that would be. Uh, That's how God assesses our so-called good deeds, that they are reprehensible to him. And that's why when people try to be right before God apart from Christ, that's why it's so repugnant, uh, because they're they're saying, I don't need Christ, I I will have my own righteousness. And someone who says, I'll have my own righteousness, will have to live with the consequences of that for all eternity, because there is no salvation for someone who depends upon his or her own righteousness. But we see this judgment uh, at the top, top of page 8. Uh, J.G. Voss uh, makes this assessment uh, that, that this is the summary of this period of history, uh, a wickedness of his heart. Uh, and the King James in verse 6 uh, says, this is the second paragraph into that, it repented the Lord that he had made uh, man on the earth and it grieved him uh, in his heart. What does it mean that... God repented. Uh, the New American Standard uh, says that God was sorry. Um, your translation may read that God repented. Uh, there's various renderings 
what does it mean that God repented? Um, does God have emotions? Uh, and what does it mean that God, that God has emotions? Um, the answer to the first question is, does God repent? Well, we have to define what we mean by that. If the answer to that is, does God change his mind? Uh, the answer to that is no, God does not change his mind. God has a decree, uh, decrees, and sometimes the people will say, what are the decrees of God? And the uh, reform uh, catechism would say the decrees of God are his eternal purpose, uh, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained uh, from eternity whatsoever comes to pass. So God has certain purposes that he has determined in eternity past, and every single one of his purposes will be accomplished without wavering or compromise whatsoever. It's all part of his eternal decree. Uh, But we we see some other uses of um, what it means to repent. Uh, And if you were to look, for instance, over at 1 Samuel 15, flip over in your scriptures to 1 Samuel 15. And the reason I'm doing this is because Um, Just one example, there is an aberrant understanding of the character of God. It's called the openness of God. You may not have heard that expression, and if you haven't, you're you're good that you haven't heard that. Um, But the openness of God means that God is learning new things, that he's responding to things that he has not uh, been aware of. Um, And, of course, the implication of that is that God is not omniscient. If God is omniscient, uh, then he knows all things. He knows not only all actual things, but all potential things. He knows of all the implications of things that not only happened, but haven't happened. Uh, and not only is he omniscient, but he is sovereign, that nothing takes place apart from the purposes of God. Uh, but this is a view that undermines the Godhood of God uh, when we use the expression, the openness of God. The reason I bring that up is if we understand uh, the so-called repentance of God Uh, As from a human perspective, uh, when someone human um, repents, it means, number one, uh, that they have sinned. And, of course, that is not ever the case of God. He's perfectly righteous, perfectly holy. He's immutable. He never changes. He's infinite in all of his attributes. So it's impossible that that could be the case with God. Um, When someone repents, uh, it also means that they're going to change uh, their behavior Um, And so does God ever change his behavior? God changes his way of relating to man based upon uh, the conduct of man. But again, look over at 1 Samuel 15. The setting here is the first king of Israel, uh, Saul. Uh, The Israelites wanted a king. Why did they want a king? Because all of their pagan neighbors had kings. Um, and they wanted to be like their pagan neighbors. They, they wanted to have someone to rule them, and, and they were warned by Samuel, be careful what you ask for, uh, because if God gives you a king, a king will uh, conscript uh, your children and turn them into military uh, uh, workers. Uh, they'll be soldiers. Uh, he will uh, enslave uh, certain of you. Uh, he will tax you. Uh, he will rule over you with an iron fist. Uh, there will be a number of things, so don't, don't always want to copy your pagan neighbors. But then, no, we, we want a king. So he gave them a king. He gave them an unrighteous king. He gave them Saul. Uh, and if you look at 1 Samuel 15, uh, Saul disobeyed God. There was a time uh, when the enemies of Israel were to be uh, completely overcome uh, and none, none were to be left alive. 
and Saul uh, did not obey that. He, in fact, instructed his soldiers to save uh, the best animals that he could find uh, for his own good. Uh, he wanted to have some remnants of the, uh, the victory for his own advancement, uh, and, uh, but all of the, the animals were to be killed along with all the people. And um, so uh, here comes the prophet Samuel, and, uh, and Saul says, I've done exactly what God told me to do. And, Saul's, and then Samuel says, well, what's that bleeding of the sheep that I hear? And uh, so he was already condemned because he was, uh, the, the animals were still around that he had saved for his own benefit. Uh, and then Saul lied to him and he says, well, um, the, the people wanted those, the soldiers wanted those. Uh, well, are you not responsible for what takes place? So basically Saul was uh, guilty uh, right on the face of things. Um, and ultimately, uh, he was determined that he would not be the king of Israel. And he said to Saul, uh, Samuel, will you uh, go with me? Uh, and Saul, and Saul, Samuel said, no, I'm not going to go with you. Uh, and uh, so there was, you can read the rest of it in, in 1 Samuel 15. Uh, but in verse 11, it says, I regret then the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, this is the word of the Lord. So in verse 11, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. And then in verse 29, so Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And then in verse 35, Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Here you have a description uh, that on the face of it, we would call this uh, an anthropomorphism. This is uh, the character of God being described in human terms so that we can, so that we can relate to it. Uh, that God is grieved at what takes place. Uh, did God change his mind? God didn't change his mind. Let me tell you why. God had already made a determination in Genesis 49 verse 10 that the scepter, the rule, would never depart from the tribe of, remember which tribe? Judah. Do you remember which tribe Saul was from? Benjamin. Uh, so who was his successor? David. David was of what tribe? Judah. And so you, you have God's purposes always were accomplished. He gave them Saul to reveal to them uh, what they would have by choosing a man after their own nature and he revealed the character of Saul and rejected him. Uh, and when God looks upon sin, it, it, it grieves him, but it doesn't. But God is, the, the Westminster Confession actually says that God has no body, parts, or passions. What they mean by passions are, are sort of emotional upheavals. Um, all of us at various points in time have had emotional outbursts or times when our emotions got the better of us. That never happens with God. Uh, God, Ephesians 4.30, for instance, tells us that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. And here we see an assessment that God looks upon evil and it grieves him. You have to understand when God made uh, the creation and he looked at all of it and said it is very, very good, it's a perfect painting. And then what happened was you have, it's, it's as if you had this, this beautiful uh, Monet, if you go to the St. Louis Art Museum or see a, a beautiful impressionistic piece of art, and someone takes a bucket of paint and throws it up on, on the Monet and just absolutely spoils it. That's what took place in God's creation with the entrance of sin. 
you had a perfect creation and it was spoiled by sin. It was ruined by, by sin. And you have the degradation of man and you have the invasion of demons taking place in Genesis 6. And you have uh, an attempt by no, none other than Satan himself to undermine the line of humanity that would ultimately bring forth the Redeemer in Genesis 3.15. And so you had the worst of all things. You had a beautiful creation. You had the entrance of sin. You had a demonic invasion. Uh, you had the degradation of humanity uh, where sin was absolutely widespread uh, and without recourse. And God says there will be recourse. And that's why he said 120 years and it's over. You remember that Methuselah's name, uh, when he was the son of Enoch, said when he dies, it comes. And Methuselah died virtually the same year as the flood. And the Lord said uh, to humankind um, that I'm not going to exercise patience with you forever because of your sin. Uh, 120 years. We talked about this last week. You remember the significance of that? That was the warning that in 120 years there would be a flood. There would be a complete wiping out of all humanity. So that's, that's the, the assessment that God made. But I wanted to, to talk about this issue of God's repentance. It's, it's a way of describing uh, what God does in ways that we can relate to it, but in no way does it show that God, number one, changes his mind. God never changes his mind. He always accomplishes what he wants to do. Uh, he's made a perfect plan for all eternity, and it's working itself out. Uh, nothing can frustrate the purposes of God. Satan tried to undermine the purposes of God by sending the demonic invasion. That was the sons of God, uh, fallen angels, cohabiting with women, trying to spoil the line of humanity. There was an attempt to completely degrade humanity so that the promised Redeemer could not come from a tainted line of humanity. Uh, and so what was the, the recourse that God had? He found one man of all humanity in his family and said, I'm going to save you and I will preserve you alone and every other human being will be destroyed. So the purposes of God will never fail. They're never, they're never at risk. Sometimes the results of sin are absolutely catastrophic. Uh, but when we look at what took place in the, the flood, uh, we can say that, that was just an incredible thing that God did to literally wipe out uh, all of humanity with the exception of a man and his wife and his sons and their, and their wives uh, and the animals that he brought on the ark with him. Uh, but the Lord Jesus Christ himself uh, it has made it a, 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 an assessment uh, that as it was in the days of Noah, uh, that, it, that there will be a time of judgment. There will not be a destruction of the earth by water, but there will be a time of destruction, and that's the second coming. There will be, a, the, the Lord will absolutely destroy the earth with fire, but not water. So judgment, you have a picture of it in Genesis 6, uh, but it's a warning uh, that, that another time of judgment is coming. So that's, uh, so if we look at page 9 of the notes, H.C. Leupold, another commentator, says the gravity of the situation is made apparent uh, by the severity of this divine re resolution. I will wipe out mankind. By the way, that language is incredibly harsh. I will wipe out, I will blot out, I will eradicate without recourse. I will completely destroy. That, that's what that means, all mankind. Sin has become so predominant and crass that the extremist measure alone can cope with it. Uh, it goes on to say, since depraved man has not improved morally since Noah's flood, instead of judging God, we ought to fear God's judgment on our sin. 
and and that's a point that we need to come away with. What what do we need to talk to our friends about? We need to talk to our friends about the fact that that God is indeed a God who will judge sin. Hebrews 9.27 says it is appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. There is no salvation apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. We we need to recognize that God is a holy God, uh, and that the only way to have a, a place with him is to be covered by the blood of his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But down at the bottom of page 9, the Apostle Peter uh, forewarned that just as God once reserved the world for judgment by water, uh, 2 Peter 3, 7, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the unlawful. So you have a picture, in a way, of what's coming uh, in Genesis 6. Uh, But then we have a a word of encouragement, a word of grace in verse 8. Uh, back to Genesis 6. Uh, it's interesting after this pronouncement that God is going to destroy the earth and all humanity with the exception of Noah. Uh, top of page 10, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Um, what's important to notice is in Genesis 6 verse 9, the scripture says uh, that Noah was a just man, a man that was perfect in his generation, a man who walked with God. Uh, And we have to keep in mind that Genesis 6, verse 8 precedes Genesis 6, verse 9. And you say, that seems obvious. But there's there's an implication there. Why was it that Noah was a man who was just? And the word means justified or declared righteous. Why was it that Noah was a man who was walking in obedience before God? The answer, and it's the same answer that applies for all of us, is he found grace in the eyes of God. It's the first time that this word favor or grace occurs in the scriptures. It literally means favor. Why do any of us live lives that are pleasing to God? It's only because God has extended favor to us. Would any of us be living lives that are acceptable before God? Would any of us be living lives where God would say that person is just, uh, that person is a man or woman of obedience, that man is a, a woman is a, a man who is living a life that brings honor to my game, to my name. The only reason that Noah was declared just and was a, a, a godly man was in verse eight, that God extended grace to him. God did not, and that's the, the reason I said that verse eight precedes verse nine. If you get things turned around, it's not that God extended grace because He looked at Noah and said, "There's a good guy." No, Noah was a godly man because God extended grace to him. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That's always the case. It starts uh, here in Genesis 6, and it's the same message that applies throughout all of Scripture, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And, And all of us. Uh, have sinned before a holy God. And so the only reason that any of us have a right standing with God is that is that beautiful word, grace. It's the same word that the Lord declared of Noah. God set his saving mercies upon one man. Why did he do that? Because he was going to destroy all of humanity. Because he had made a promise in Genesis 3.15 that there would be the seed of the woman that would come and crush the, the seed of the servant. That there would be uh, a, a one who would come, a Messiah, who would be victor over sin and death and hell. And that purpose that God made, that decree, 
would ultimately be fulfilled and has been fulfilled in history in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God's purposes always are accomplished. God looked at humanity and said, I'm going to accomplish that purpose and Noah's my man. And why would Noah, so he made that determination. He set his saving mercies on Noah. Why did he do that? Because he looked at Noah's life and he said, here's someone that really deserves my grace. No, that's not, that's not the case with any of us. None of us deserve God's grace. It, it, you know, grace is an acronym sometimes in God's riches at Christ's expense. That's, that's a lot of times we look at that. Grace is completely unmerited. Noah did not merit God's favor. God bestowed grace upon Noah, and therefore he lived a life that was just. He lived a life that was righteous. He lived a life that was worthy of being the progenitor, if I can use that term, of the line of humanity that would ultimately give rise to the, to the Messiah. Uh, so that's it, the, the grace of God is, is manifest everywhere in this. And that's why, uh, it, it, if you look um, at the bottom of page 10, a couple of points. Number one. God did not allow the unmitigated pollution of the human race through demonic corruption. He, he, he could not countenance that. And top of page two, uh, 11, number 2, nor did God allow the promised offspring to be cut off. Noah found grace from God in order that Jesus, God's own son, born of a virgin, the virgin, would cleanse the world of sin, not by water, but by his blood. What's interesting about this by way of application, and just in this inset, Richard Phillips makes this very apt uh, observation, that the waters of Noah's flood did not actually remove sin from the world, after all, since Noah's family also brought sin with them. Uh, I want to show you something. I only noticed it this week. Look at Genesis 8, verse 21. You saw Genesis 6, verse 5, that God looked at every imagination of the heart and, and it's only evil all the time. Look at Genesis 8, verse 21. This is after the flood. This is a sacrifice that Noah made to God. In verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Now, this was a very costly sacrifice because Noah only had seven couples of clean animals, and they survived, and he took uh, one of these clean animals from every, every type and sacrificed them. He only had a handful of these animals, and he sacrificed one of each of them. Uh, but he offered these animals before the Lord. And the Lord said to him, I will never again curse the ground on account of man. But look at this language. For the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never destroy every living thing as I have done. That's virtually the same language that you see in Genesis 6, verse 5. Before the flood, he said, every imagination of the heart of man is evil all the time. And here you have almost identical language. Guess what? Human nature hasn't changed. Noah, was he, he was saved, but he, he was a fallen man uh, in terms of, of having the sin nature. He was covered uh, by the atonement of Christ, and he was just by God, but not because he was worthy. He was just because of God's favor. But guess what? Every descendant of Noah, and you're a descendant of Noah, uh, inherits his nature. Your nature is not a good nature. And, and we're born with that same nature that Noah had. We're born with the same nature that needs redemption. And, and so the, only, the difference is that God said, I'm not going to wipe out the, the world with water again, but there will come a time when I will exercise judgment on all humanity, and that's called the second coming. 
And, and there will be, Psalm 2 actually deals with that. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? They want to cast off these shackles because they see it of, of God's anointed. And you, you know the, the response to that? The, the psalmist says in Psalm 2, God laughs. One of the very few expressions in all of Scripture that says God laughs. He laughs not in humor. He laughs in, in, in manifest derision against the, 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 the arrogance of man that he would try to upset the purposes of God. And God says, I have I've made my appointed, I've, I've, I've appointed my king to reign, and he will reign. And, and he uses language uh, that was actually uh, akin to what you would see in the, the Middle East, uh, the, the ancient Near East, where a king, before he went to war, would have his people create sort of clay images of the enemy, and he would take a stick and he would absolutely crush those clay images. And it's that same language that you see in Psalm 2, that he will crush them with a rod of iron that all of fallenness will be utterly destroyed. There will be none left. God will completely eradicate evil, finally, with the second coming. So we have a, a, a bit of a preview in the flood of the character of God. God is a judging God, but he is a gracious God. He's a saving God. And so the, the lesson here is just as Noah was saved uh, by the ark, so we need to be saved, uh, and we are saved, not through an ark, uh, but through the Lord Jesus Christ and his shed blood on our behalf. So we have grace that is, is pictured for us here as well. And that's the point that Kent Hughes is making on page 11. So in conclusion, page 12, um, David Guzik makes some observations about uh, what took place. Uh, and I, I think it's, it's apt. He says, we can deduce uh, why Satan sent his angels to intermarry, uh, cohabit either directly or indirectly with human women. Satan tried to pollute mankind with satanic corruption. He did. He tried to upset the purposes of God, the, the promise of God in Genesis 3.15. He knew that his doom was, was, was already written down with an iron pen by God's own hand that his head would be crushed. And so Satan says, no, I'm going to upset the purposes of God. You cannot upset the purposes of God. Uh, but it was an attempt to pollute mankind and to make the human race unfit for bringing forth the seed of the woman, the Messiah, in Genesis 3.15. Um, James Boyce, uh, now with the Lord, said the Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in, in infecting the entire race, the Deliverer could not come. That's in Genesis 6. That's the invasion of the sons of God cohabiting with the daughters of men. And Guzik goes on to say, and Satan almost succeeded. Uh, the key word is almost. The race was so polluted that God found it necessary to start again with Noah and his sons and to imprison the demons that did this so that they could never do this again. We saw that in Jude, uh, verses 14 and 15. We saw that in a previous class. Uh, so I just wanted to touch on, on this section where, where literally next time we gather, Lord willing, we'll be looking at Noah uh, and uh, the building of the ark. Uh, and the uh, deliverance of mankind from this worldwide deluge that literally took the lives of every human being other than Noah and his immediate family and every non-marine animal, birds, uh, animals, whatever the case, other than fish, um, and destroyed it. Why? Because God was wiping out uh, all of the, the corruption that was in the world and starting over with a man that he himself had decided he would extend grace to. And so through that man, Noah, uh, the Lord would bring forth another line of humanity. And that's why in Genesis 6, 
verse 9 and following, we have this expression that Moses uses, now the generations of. That's a linguistic marker. Okay, mark this. We're about to engage in a new chapter in God's redemptive history. The new chapter is what happened with Noah. So Lord willing, we'll pick that up next time.